If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. To also unpack one of the terms you cited that I use in the book, this idea of a commodity empire then is acknowledging that fish have long been an object through which global empires have been mediated. We see this throughout history, at least in the Mediterranean basin. And part of what is going on at an ICAP meeting is similarly a jockeying of position for power and control through fish. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jen Teleska, Associate Professor of Environmental Governance at Rabaud University, the Netherlands. Her work takes a critical approach to ocean studies spanning the interests of political economy, the human-animal relationship, the politics of extinction, science and technology in policymaking, environmental diplomacy, and ethnographies of international law in society. She conducts fieldwork at the United Nations and in treaty bodies, diplomatic missions, and other sites scaled supranationally. Jen's first book, which we will center our episode on today, is Red Gold, The Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna, which shows just how damned the lives of fishes are in the very world entrusted to care for them in ocean governance. Really, in many ways, the historical record we know for the giants in the Atlantic anyway stems from the Phoenicians, so some 3,000 years ago. And we have these like very rich records from the Mediterranean basin. 
And so over time, these were creatures that were once so large that they were quite literally like the, the focus of banquets. We know from the archaeological record when emperors would have, you know, very extravagant dinners that these were the center of meals in large part because they were seen as creatures who could connect people to the underworld. And so over time, you see people's relationship with bluefin change. And most recently, if we just fast forward you know, quite rapidly until the, the 20th century, these were creatures that in the 1950s, 1960s, were pretty much disregarded at docks amongst recreational fishers, treated as pet food, or were canned for pennies a pound. And that rapidly changed with the advent of the global sushi economy in the early 1970s, when there was this very famous moment at Tsukiji Market in Tokyo. You could imagine that this was the first moment that a Japanese connoisseur had tasted bluefin from the Atlantic Ocean, right? Because before there's, there's other varieties of bluefin, but these were clearly only eaten from the Pacific if you were in Japan at the time. And so at the same time that you're starting to see the availability of bluefin as a result of globalized processes, so the ability to get fresh fish fast delivered overnight, oftentimes by air cargo, at the same time you have this other stream happening of the recognition that these creatures are being caught quite extensively by various longline vessels. And so there was an acknowledgement in the 1960s that because these were fish that were already seen as overfished in the 1960s, that there was an impetus to create a regulatory regime in order to oversee their trade. And so there's like these two streams then, like one, the emergence of the global sushi economy, and then the other, the emergence of the international regulation of highly migratory fish, such as bluefin. And these converge in many ways by the late 1970s, certainly by the early 1980s, that bluefin are becoming increasingly valued, no longer worth pennies a pound, but in fact, have now become one of the most expensive sushi money can buy. And part of what is so dismaying, disturbing, upsetting about many of this is that the vast majority of people, even if they know what uh, or who a bluefin is, will know that a bluefin is quite expensive and or bluefin is getting smaller in number, right? So there's you know various discussions about a relative extinction to years past. And what I find remarkable that is you know worth remarking upon is the fact that the vast majority of people are so alienated from her life world that they don't know what an extraordinary creature she is and instead just widely see her as a foodstuff trafficked on the global market and i think it's imperative for that that world view to change yeah. And I mean, I feel like in general with the globalized and centralized 
industrial scale food system, it makes it very difficult for people to actually know the foods that we consume. And I think that's the case for a lot of other food stuff that we consume as well, as people don't even know the beings in their habitats and how they express themselves and what they're like in their own right. And a lot of your work highlights the hypocrisies of the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, also abbreviated as the ICCAT. Namely, you expose how the institution set up to supposedly conserve the Atlantic tunas has actually been complicit in their extermination. And that, quote, they managed the bluefin not to protect them, but to secure export markets for commodity empires, end quote. So what should people know about this group, their approach and way of framing their conservation work and the international law assigned to it, showing that they cannot be trusted to have the bluefin's inherent interests at heart beyond their value as commodity to the national economies? Yeah, so in many ways, the book is very much about trying to peel the layers off of what's going on inside the regime, because the vast majority of people, the lay public, is not allowed access to their meetings. Journalists are also not allowed access to their meetings. And so I spent several years traveling through the network, going to its meetings. And part of what I learned and what I think is also really important is I don't want to subscribe to what I call in one of the chapters in the book, the savior plot, right? Where this is a narrative where the bluefin is a victim, the environmentalists are the saviors and the institution. So ICCCAT is, is people refer to as ICAT is the great evildoer. And I think it's actually a lot more complex than that. And part of what is going on here is that the institution was designed effectively out of a legal framework from the 1950s, where the vast majority of people just assumed that fish were food, right? So it's only until the early 1990s, even, that the public starts to get an inkling into the fact that actually, these are creatures that are also wild animals. And so ICAT has inherited this legal framework. And in many ways, part of what's going on here is those who work at the institution or those who go to its meetings as part of state delegations or even the environmentalists that try to draw attention to what's going on inside the regime, that in many ways, it becomes difficult for the regime to transform because it's tethered to this architecture that we've inherited from the 1950s that's no longer fit for purpose. And so I don't want to single out ICAT by saying that ICAT is the great evildoer and we should all just work to undo its legitimacy. It's actually that ICAT is part of a larger constellation of institutions that are oriented in such a way that put people, that is elites who can afford today anyway, fresh fish fast, that ICAT in many ways is, is doing the job that's asked of it. And until that legal architecture changes, 
And until people demand for that change by revaluing who these creatures are beyond just mere foodstuff, beyond just mere commodity, I, I don't see a path forward for real meaningful change. Mm. And as an extension, you share specifically that under the prevailing regime of value, an ocean teeming with big bluefin is not economically advantageous. ICAT is tasked not with protecting the integrity of the ecosystem, but with securing and distributing trade volumes, quote unquote, biomass in fisheries yeah. parlance, end quote. I guess I'm a little baffled by why even in their lens with their foundations, ensuring an ocean full of big bluefin wouldn't be in their long-term business interests and that they wouldn't be alarmed by the decrease in number of big fish in the sea. Is this just because they've been oriented towards short-term gain in their values and what their goals are? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to answer that question. So most directly, yes, right? So I think part of what is going on that is confusing to an outsider is, right, so the title, you know, as you mentioned, of the institution is the International Commission for the Conservation mm -hmm. of Atlantic Tunas. But the term conservation is not oriented to an environmental space. So this is not an, an environmental organization, like it is an international trade organization, right? So I remember there was, there was one point I was at a, a meeting and the commissioner pulled me aside. We had an informal discussion and he remarked that part of what is also going on inside those meetings is, especially if you're a poor developing country that has a quota for bluefin, you'll say to a rich, powerful state, I'm not going to give you our fish unless you give me automobiles at a cheaper price. And so part of what's going on is that ICAT, because it's an international trade organization, is also concerned on the periphery with sending low-level bureaucrats who are doing the regulatory work of global trade. So they're interested in you know, various global commodities, bananas, coffee, fish, but also finished goods, right? And some of this, actually, if you dig online, some of this is, is available as, as public knowledge. But unfortunately, this is part of the, the logic of this institution. And so I think, you know, then to also maybe flush out and unpack one of the terms you cited that I use in the book, this idea of a commodity empire then, I think part of what I'm up to here is acknowledging that fish have long been an object through which global empires have been mediated, right? So we see this through the Phoenicians, we th see this through, as I mentioned earlier, we see this throughout history, at least in the Mediterranean basin. And part of what is going on at an ICAP meeting is similarly a jockeying of position for power and control through fish. So for example, the European Union, the US, Japan, and to a certain extent, China, maybe Canada, wield a 
disproportionate degree of power in relationship to poor developing states. And so in many ways, these institutions just become elaborate exercises to, in some respects, secure the status quo. But in other respects, there's other things going on too, right? So, and as I mentioned in the book, if the outcome is already predetermined, why have an ICAP meeting at all? And I think for that, you also have to appreciate the way in which there are other things going on at meetings. There are professionals who are asserting their status amongst other professionals, right? Like you would find in any workplace. There are also aspirations for not just empire, but also nationalism, right? So for example, Spain is probably one of the best examples, right? So ICAT, its secretariat is headquartered in the landlocked capital of Madrid. And Spain very much, you know, recall during the early 20th century through the Spanish Civil War was quite poor. And when Francisco Franco, the former dictator, became head of state as one of the longest reigning dictators of Europe in the 20th century, he was from Galicia province, which is on the Spanish coast. And he was explicit in investing Spain's economy in seafaring initiatives, so shipbuilding, fisheries, and to the point that Spain now has one of the largest fishing fleets in the world. And this is all part of this kind of nationalist bravado of reimagining Spain in the image of its former empire, and thus its armada, right? And so I say that, and I I don't want to single out Spain because this is happening amongst other state delegations as well, but I just offer that to your listeners as a way for them to understand that on one level, yes, it's brute economics, but on another level, it's much more complex than that. And so there's this entire social cultural life around these kinds of institutions that I think is also really important to expose, especially when we start to get into discussions about nationalism, empire, and other kind of motivations for why someone would go to one of these meetings at all. Wow. There are lots of layers here. And It must have been really interesting for you to be able to gain access to witness and experience and see Mm. a lot of these power dynamics and power plays going on. And so, yeah, you know, I guess on the surface, it seems like it's all about the conservation of the Atlantic bluefin. In reality, this is all rooted in industry interests for trade and commodity. And there's a lot more happening under that same name and goal. And something that has concerned you is how, as you note, even journalists, environmentalists, and the scientists Mm. in position to 
best stand up for the giant bluefin in these spaces have internalized the predatory logic of fish as commodity. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by this? And I'm curious whether their use of industry language, if that's a part of it, may be strategic in the sense that they're trying to appeal to commercial interests that, you know, ensuring healthy and vibrant marine ecosystems and healthy populations of the bluefin should be at the core of their values and long-term goals as well. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. So let me just start by saying the point that you raised, so to what degree have they internalized some of this industrial commodified logic? And I would say to a certain extent, that's definitely true. It's so, and I've written about this elsewhere, which is I remember early on in the research project being very taken aback by this language of a fish stock, right? So whether or not you're a scientist or a policymaker or an environmentalist, this is verbiage that's widely used throughout fisheries. And I've actually, I've written quite a bit about this, which is to say that on the one hand, this language of a fish stock is important because it, the, the word choices that people make are windows into their worldviews, right? So on the one hand, stock as, you know, Wall Street, a stock to trade is, is obvious, right? But there's this other stream of thinking about stock as lineage, right? To say, like, Mary is of good stock. And this other kind of racialized understanding is equally as important to understand the logic of what's happening inside these regimes, which is to say that if you were a slave on the trading block, one of the reasons why that is so disturbing is because all of the internal complexity of a human being is flattened into their into their skin color, into their ability to be productive units. And so in order to be able to assign a value, so you know what the price is of that person on the market. And there's something similar going on here, which is to say that the flattening, right? So the fact that we don't see fish as individuals with social lives that cooperate and get scared or communicate, right? That whole life world of a fish is completely denied us in large part because you have to flatten, you can't, you must deny that life world in order to be able to treat that animal as a, as a general generic class of being to assign a price to trade that animal on the global market. So it's like an elaborate way of saying that, yes, by using this language of a stock, people don't necessarily realize all that they're committing themselves to when they use this language, right? But then, you know, to get at, at, your, at your other parts of your question, let me just take them separately. So let me first take the environmentalists, and then I'll speak about the scientists. Um, you know, sometimes there's overlap in the two, sometimes not. So part of what I discovered in the field is 
that the world of marine conservation in many ways is very behind other environmental movements in its ability to be able to take on questions of environmental injustice. So that the environmentalists working in marine conservation, the vast majority of them are what scholars refer to as like these sort of mainstream environmentalists. So it's like save the whale, save the bluefin, save the tiger. And these are, not to say these are insignificant, they remain important, but part of the limitations of those frames is they're not able to get at the root of why we need to save the whale, the bluefin, the tiger. And that's where a more environmental justice framework becomes really important because it then illuminates what are the structural conditions that have contributed to the slaughter of these animals. And for that, we have to turn to commodification, to capitalism, to you know, runaway forms of exploitation, to empire, You're and so on. You're listening to Green Dreamer, and so a listener the mainstream environmental movement kind of dances around, and, As and we is not able to fully year for the engage show, we would love to with those you to systemic join our problems community, where we'll that begin to otherwise share bonus have offerings, created the conditions some for the of my slaughter. Own reflections on these conversations and so and what more. I saw in the bluefin if example you've been with us for a while, you know that we often that, explore ideas and so the, perspectives the save the bluefin that go against mainstream campaigns in order to were part of a mainstream thinking for movement what could be. that was never so able value our to address matters of environmental injustice. Of mainstream not media, only for the animals, but also for the power differentials that exist in that global commodities trade. Right. So, for example, you know, you go to an ICAP meeting and you might have forty delegates from the U.S participating in a meeting, and yet Uruguay might send one, or Trinidad and Tobago might send one. And so when you see that disproportionate participation by the rich trading areas, it then becomes no wonder that the global South, broadly defined, is not able to fully participate in these institutions as full equals. And the, the mainstream environmental movement, at least in the context of the bluefin, nowhere discusses any of this. The vast majority of campaigns are just about, you know, the bluefin are getting smaller in number and there's so few left of them that therefore they should be saved. And it's the simplistic kind of narrative that unfortunately I think has gotten in the way of real transformation, right? Because the public isn't fully understanding the complexity of what's going on. And, and in, in all fairness, in all fairness, the news media doesn't have, you know, with the exception of these kinds of podcasts, doesn't have the capacity to fully inform the public about this kind of complexity, especially, you know, with people on the go, reading headlines, not necessarily engaging with the news. And then, you know, to address then the scientists, unfortunately, I think there's an, an analogy that could be drawn between 
fishery science and geology in the sense that these are two forms of knowledge production that are very much tied to industrial extraction, right? So fishery science, obviously, with with fish, but at least for some geologists, their expertise is often used by oil and gas industry in order to figure out where the next uh, site to extract is. And so um, you can see then, at least in the context of fishery science, this is a form of knowledge production that's not actually formalized until late 19th, early 20th century, certainly by like 1920s, 1930s. So this is a relatively recent field and developed in large measure by the state to ensure that the foxes weren't guarding the hen house, right? So to ensure that as a check then on industrial extraction. And unfortunately, that check on industrial extraction hasn't always lived up to its aim. And, you know, there's variability here for sure. There are some fishery scientists who are very committed to marine conservation in the strong sense. And there are other marine scientists who work for industry. And they all participate in an ICAP meeting to various proportion. And I think it's just important to acknowledge that unlike the world of climate science, that has developed somewhat independently of the area in which it studies. The world of fishery science is still tied to industry in ways that must alert us to question the truth value of some of the knowledge that is produced. And you know, and, and you see this, for example, in, in two ways. So one, there is a preoccupation with number. There's a preoccupation with numbers that become trade volumes. So that in an ICAP meeting, for example, their models that produce future populations of fish, right? So how many are there gonna be into the future? Those models can't accommodate the fact that we've lost not just numbers, but size so that those giants that I knew as a child are no more. And from what I could tell, there wasn't a lot of worry inside the regime that we've lost the big fish, we've lost the giants, because they're so preoccupied with what they refer to as biomass, with, with how many there are. And, and that's a problem from the perspective of conservation also because we know that fish are not people, right? So, so fish contribute to the future generations the bigger they are, because the bigger a fish is, the more eggs they lay and fertilize. And so the smaller the fish are, the less they contribute to the re reproductive capacity of future generations. And so my concern about the loss of the size of the animal must be in conversation with the loss of number. And the science isn't adequately addressing that. And another way, actually, we, we know this, 
you know, interestingly, I, I participated in this study last summer. I was working with a group of researchers who were comparing a tuna, a whale, and an octopus, and how they were treated across scales based on, so what's, what's the cultural narrative, what's the scientific narrative, and what's the legal regime in place to protect these creatures. And so as part of this research team, I was entrusted with looking at what are the cultural narratives around tunas. And I have to tell you, I, I mean, I had been with this book for a decade and I didn't notice that every picture, every representation of these creatures is always either at or near death. Mm. And that you never see these creatures as living beings careening through the ocean. So in other words, that when you see the creature at or near death, it then allows for the ease with which then they become mere objects for consumption, right? So, so soon to be consumed in a human-centric society. And what was really fascinating, actually, was that the researcher who was looking at the scientific narratives of tunas could only find one study from the 1980s, the early 1980s, that showed the bluefin swimming in packs with very aligned, sequenced distance between the animals, which suggested a degree of cooperation because all of the scientific literature about tunas is about, so at what age do they mature so we know when to catch them? Or what do they eat so that we know how fast they grow? Even, even the research itself is very much oriented to an extractive logic. And I think that's also really important for us to, to think about. And unfortunately, you know, I, I think it might be changing. You know, there's some recent literature asking, do fish feel pain? And, you know, which we can debate whether or not that's a good question. But nonetheless, there is some opening, not necessarily in the context of tunas, but certainly in an octopus or you know, certainly in, in the life of a whale or a dolphin, that there's a generalized consciousness increasingly that these are sentient cognitive beings with social lives. And of course, why would we not extend that to the life of a tuna? Especially knowing that these are these are creatures that, you know, so for, for listeners that may not know this, right? So, so a bluefin or a yellowfin is red versus an albacore is white, right? Their meat is red versus white because tunas have a capacity inside themselves to elevate their internal temperature so that they can swim faster on the hunt or potentially to play with their mates, Right, so that these are creatures that 
are actually warm-blooded somewhere on the evolutionary scale between a cold-blooded cod and a seafaring humpback. And so there's, there's this sense of, too, and, and this is increasingly motivating my work, which is how do we reimagine our relationships both on an individual scale and on a collective scale at the level of governance, at the level of discourse, in order to be able to see these creatures as just fellow travelers, just trying to survive just like everyone else. And I would presume that the funding going into these fields of fishery science research disproportionately come from industry too. So maybe the reflection of the skewed research that does get published, maybe it kind of reflects the funding. So then there would be an institutional bias of what types of research get more funding to be carried out and the goals of what these papers are trying to find out. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. And some of the research is also funded by the rich trading blocks that have an interest in protecting their export markets. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot of that happening too, to the point that the fishery scientists who critique their discipline might be celebrated by an environmentalist, but inside those regimes, they know that they're pretty much not welcome. And so again, that's why I was saying, I mentioned earlier where you see, you know, just like any workplace, you know, you see these status plays uh, happening. And so, you know, to return to your point, yes, it can be traced down to funding. And, And in many cases, you know, it is funded by industry but a lot of it is also funded by state. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's both of that happening. Well, one of the possible more immediate solutions that you talk about is establishing no-take zones in order to let bluefin populations restore themselves. And in theory, it makes sense. And in theory, it also reminds me a little of what's called fortress conservation, which is mostly on land blocking off certain places to be completely off limits to people. And I know this has been criticized as enforcing colonial logics of a separation between humans and nature, resulting on land often to a displacement of indigenous and local communities and preventing them from practicing their subsistence, land-based life and food waste. And this is different, of course, because we're talking about the deep seas. But I wonder if you could expand on this proposal and its status of implementation, as well as broadly speaking, how the overfishing from industrial activities has impacted coastal communities dependent on subsistence fishing in order to feed themselves and their families. So a couple of things. So again, I, I think the relationship between rich trading areas and poor developing states, again, must be acknowledged because, you know, a lot of times, at least, you know, I can speak mostly about tuna fisheries in the Atlantic and to a certain degree in the Pacific. And part of what I think is important here is that when you have these large scale factory vessels that are, you know, they come in and they pretty much just vacuum it all up. And if you're an artisanal fisher 
And I mean artisanal in the sense of a non-subsidized fisher doesn't get support from the state, trying to just make ends meet. That becomes very difficult to be able to sustain yourself. And so in some respects, the no-take zones in my experience tends to be a general rule of thumb but it also depends on where it's implemented. So, you know, context also does matter. And so here I'm thinking especially of Pacific Islanders who are very dependent on tuna fisheries for their very survival. And indeed, for some of them, it is their primary export to the point that, you know, the belly of the equator in the Pacific Ocean is one of the highest concentrations of where people, assuming they eat tunas, get their tuna. And so the vast majority of, of tuna comes from that that tuna belt in the Pacific, some of which is from the economic areas, the exclusive economic zones of Pacific Island states. And what's happening though now, and this is part of the complexity, right, which is to say that these no-take zones also must be in conversation with what's going on in the world of climate science, right? Or what's going on, not even just climate science, but traditional or local knowledge, right? So we know, for example, that as the tuna belt starts to warm up from heat waves in the ocean, for example, and just an ocean that's getting warmer in temperature, that the fish are starting to head to the poles. And so part of the complicating factor then of a no-take zone is that the no-take zone has to also accommodate changes that are happening in the community. And, And by community, I mean not just human community, but in the biomes in the sea. So that must also inform how we define those no-take zones. You know, that said, the point about to what extent some of these no-take zones or even the creation of uh, marine parks speaks to or can serve a colonial or imperialist project, I think is also context-specific and must also be part of the conversation, right? So for example, I remember hearing several years ago, the U.S. was interested in creating a marine park near uh, Hawaii with the goal of eventually stretching that conservation area potentially through to Japan. And then, you know, I was kind of like, you know, as someone with environmental conservation and the strong sense um, motives, you know, like, wow, that sounds great. And then I remember I was, you know, in my apartment in Brooklyn a couple of years ago and just listening to an episode of Democracy Now! And the host, Amy Goodman, had Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder, on. And there was this discussion that alerted me to the fact that actually the creation of these marine parks, and here Julian Assange was talking about the creation of a marine park in the Chagos Archipelago in the Indian Ocean, motivated by the U.S. military's interest 
to have fishing boats and other potential vessels free of the area so that the U.S., at least in the capacity of the Chagos Islands, which was one of the great military bases during the so-called War on Terror, that the island of Diego Garcia is a key landing point from where the U.S. military would not only send you know, aircraft and soldiers and other military equipment, but it was also the site very close to Diego Garcia, right off its shores, where there was claims of potential torture of people not favorable to U.S. interests, to put it, uh, I guess, kind of blandly. But nonetheless, I think this is also really important to note because at a certain level, it should give us pause sometimes if we think of what might be in the interests of the U.S. government vis-a-vis the U.S. military to establish a no-take zone in order to create a corridor for its military in the Pacific, right? If I return now back to the Pacific. And so I, I say all that in the sense that, you know, I heard some rumblings of this, you know, in the field. I haven't pursued this as a research agenda specifically, but nonetheless, I think it's really important for people to acknowledge that there's really no such thing as a pure motive in at least marine conservation. And it's important for us to unpack what might be other motives, including that by the U.S. military, in order to exert its might, its imperial ambitions, uh, secure its power on the world stage and so forth. Yeah, it sounds like we, I mean, there's so much happening underneath the surface and people really have to peel back the curtains in order to fully understand the complexities, the power plays and everything happening in the field of marine conservation. And in light of the pressures of overfishing, nearly half of the seafood that people consume today come from farmed fish. But like Mm -hmm. industrial agrochemical agriculture on land, at that scale, with all the issues that come with any sort of intensive monoculture, the harboring of disease, the overuse of antibiotics, and all the other mass-produced inputs needed, that's not really a solution with the host of concerns that it comes with. And it also doesn't address that people still feel very disconnected from seeing fish as agential beings in their own right. And then as people consider our roles directly or indirectly contributing to overfishing and industrial fishing, I think one of the most immediate things people would look to is something like certifications or eco-labeling to quote-unquote vote with our dollars. In the fishing world, people may have heard of the Marine Stewardship Council as an example, but how do you see all of this as a sort of blue washing, which is counterproductive, and where does this leave us? And are there any initiatives that have really inspired you that you feel are more incisive in getting to the heart of the problem, which is much deeper, much more complex, and much more systemic? Yeah, so let me just briefly share a little bit about the aquaculture piece. So I think first and foremost is the acknowledgement that if you farm fish, there's a difference between farming carnivorous fish, so fish that eat other fish, versus fish that might eat algae and other kind of plant life. 
And the former aquaculture that involves carnivorous fish is much more problematic. And problematic because it means either you have to go out to catch more fish in order to feed the carnivorous fish, which thereby just doubles down on the overfishing problem. Or as I've experienced at some of the salmon farms in Norway, there was a very unsettling moment. You can actually go to a salmon farm in Norway as a tourist and, you know, see how it's done. And uh, it's relatively celebrated as an achievement of technological innovation and as the savior to an ocean emptying of fish. And yet, again, scratch the surface, and you hear that these are fish that are also fed a diet of genetically modified soy. And, you know, the last time I checked, salmon don't eat soy, let alone genetically modified soy. And to the point that, uh, you know, a salmon gets her color pink by eating shrimp on the seafloor. And because salmon aren't eating that shrimp, and they might, the aquaculturists might mask that over by feeding the salmon the discarded shells of shrimp, you know, the, the frameworks of, of, a, of a shrimp, the fact of the matter is they have to, you know, so when you go to a supermarket and you look at the refrigerator of salmon, and when that salmon is neon pink, that's because they injected the salmon with dye. And so the whole thing, you know, and, and this is aside from the fact that about half of salmon farmed in these pens are now deaf because they, they cannot hear. They've lost one of their primary sensory mechanisms. And yet, again, because we are so, the vast majority of us anyway, are so alienated from the food that we eat, we have no idea who that being is that we purchase at a market, right? And so part of the effort then is for us to become better acquainted with these creatures. And then to get to your other point about certification and echo labeling, I'm deeply suspect. Indeed, I have written about the fact that these are uh, scams, shams, just elaborate efforts to effectively concentrate power in the hands of a few industrial fishers, right? And why might that be, right? So let's, you know, think through the economic logic, right? So if you're a so-called independent certifier, you too, even if independent, you know, have to stay in business. And so you stay in business by selling your label so that when a consumer goes to the supermarket, uh, and they see that Marine Stewardship Council or other kinds of echo labeling device say, oh, you know, I'm relieved of guilt. This must be a good fish to buy. And so let me purchase. But the point is, the vast majority, it's like well over 90% of those certification schemes, at least in the context of the Marine Stewardship Council, are industrial scale fishing fleets the vast majority themselves petroleum powered, the very ones that are going out to, again, vacuum up what's in the sea in ways that starve those artisanal fishers, those poor from the global south. 
And so you see the way in which these certification programs become elaborate schemes to effectively defraud the public about what is really going on, which is the intensification of power concentrated in the hands of a few industrial players protected by the nation states where they conduct their business. And so in many ways, both of these, right, so aquaculture, eco-labeling or certification programs are rooted in a consumptive approach, right? So both of them assume that consumers have the answer and that with enough purchasing power, if enough consumers gather their energies, that this is going to somehow reform the market. And I deeply worry about these approaches because they remain, even if peripheral, right, to these market logics, right? So even though they might not at first appear, even though some are explicitly extractive, the fact of the matter is they're sold to the public as solutions rooted in the presumption of consumer power. And I think, in my view, what really needs rehabilitation, especially in the US, and I would add probably the UK to this, and you know, I'm here having now just recently moved to the Netherlands and lived quite a bit in Norway. And so that there's this, there's this sense in which what needs rehabilitation is the recovery of people who understand themselves as citizens, who are collectively acting in a society in which all, human and non-human, are treated with respect. And that comes through, that kind of citizen collective action comes through the power of the state. And so in, in my view, part of what I've, I've seen in, in my own experience over the years, and it just feels particularly pronounced in the States, in the U.S., is just an erosion and a distrust of the state. And I, I think that there are signs, I hope perhaps, that this might be rehabilitated. And I think for any kind of meaningful transformation to be scaled on a level that would enable the change that all of us, or at least I, I think your listeners are trying to work toward, that has to come through collective action. And one agent of collective action is the state. You know, there are others. It's just more, I, I think, in many ways, just to alert your listeners to become more suspicious of solutions that are rooted in the power of an individual consumer, you know, freely acting in a world of markets as if that is enough to stem the slaughter. You know, it might be enough to relieve oneself of guilt or feel ethically sound, but in many ways, for me anyway, that's the floor, not the ceiling.
What's been one of the most impactful books or publications that you've engaged with? Hands down, the best book I've read within the last year is Undrowned, subtitle Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals by Alexis Pauline Gums. Mm. It's a brilliant, uh, brilliant both in terms of its language and its rigor and its compassion, but also brilliant in reminding us that the fate of marginalized people and communities of color share an affinity with the disregarded lives who inhabit the sea, that is, whales and other sea creatures, in large measure because the harm that both groups experience is produced out of that same exploitative system. What is a motto, mantra, or practice that helps you to stay grounded? I have to it's funny that you ask this because I just recently moved to the Netherlands. I got here about two weeks ago and, you know, picking up and moving transatlantically was a heavy lift. And there's been quite a few mottos, mantras, and practices that have kept me grounded, or at least I hope during this time. And I've been doing this since the pandemic, actually. So probably for now about two years is um, when I wake up, in the morning before I get out of bed, I listen to my mom and I count my blessings. Mm. And I give thanks for not just my material conditions, but also for the people in my life. And in many ways, this allows me to start my day in ways that orient me to the sacred. And that's that's really how I I try to inhabit the world and I have to pull myself back oftentimes just by like, you know, we all get consumed or at least I do sometimes by bureaucratic or, you know, other kinds of stumbling blocks that sometimes get in the way. And so I have to reel myself back and remind myself of blessings, not as you know, an endless stream or least as, you know, like an accounting practice, but again, as a reminder of inhabiting a world that is sacred. Beautiful. And what is your, or what is one of your biggest sources of inspiration at the moment? I realized actually, you know, I'm not a big tech or app buff, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in the 1990s in some respects, but I have discovered this app by uh, Cornell. It's the Cornell Merlin app. You know, so the Cornell is is very well known for their study of birds. And they have this portion in the app where you can do a sound ID. So you hit this recording and the app will tell you uh, and identify the birds in your community. You know, the, so so the app will share with you through birdsong who our neighbors are. And so I remember when I was living in Brooklyn, the place where I was living in this like courtyard, it wasn't like a typical New York, highly trafficked, honking environment, you know, with ambulances like constantly uh, going by. And I remember always feeling like, oh, who are the who are these creatures that I'm hearing? And then I found this app and 
the beauty now is I was walking in a park in Amsterdam last week and the it was you know the sun had uh was just about to set and the birds were so loud and I pulled out the app and I was like oh you know let me see I don't you know I I wasn't sure if it worked in the Netherlands too and sure enough it did and so it's a way for me to know my neighbors as fellow creatures and there's something very powerful for me when for example i know now i can hear a cardinal before i can see he or her and there's something very powerful about that sensory condition you know that that sensory possibility to be able to draw yourself back into the present including with creatures with birds that are all around us we we hope and yet we may not know who they are mm. thank you so much for sharing that the last thing i need to get from you is your final words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with as green dreamers as i say to all my students it's imperative to push past the paralysis that one might feel given the enormity of the destruction happening ecologically around us and i say that in large measure because it's people in positions of power hope that you remain paralyzed because if you do you're not going to do anything about what's going on and thus the status quo will continue and so the challenge really is to push through that paralysis and become engaged in your community and however way you want in order to find alliances with which to build a more just transition for the future we all want to inhabit. This episode was brought to you by listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also really appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song feature today is Over It by Ruby Madir. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>